0: Welcome to the No Neutral Moments Podcast. My name is Patrick Payton, and it's my pleasure to discuss, to explore, and maybe even to discover what it means for each one of us to live our lives fully engaged, to challenge each one of us to be fully aware and completely expecting to engage to the fullest everything we've been designed, called, and gifted to be. So, with all this in mind, let's not waste any more time. Let's go ahead and get engaged. Well, hello there, and welcome to this uh, episode of the No Neutral Moments podcast. Uh, This is the second episode of my thoughts about 2022, lessons from 2022, and it's it's great to have you with us, and I hope you continue to enjoy the podcast. Before I jump right in, just want to uh, let you know a couple of things. One, uh, we are now in this phase of looking for new sponsors for the podcast, and so that just helps us offset some of the expenses of bringing this to you. Um, and so if you're interested in that, please just email me at patrick at paytongroupc dot com and that's my first name p a t r i c k at p a y t o n Group, LLC, Group LLC.com. So love to hear from you. Thank you again for passing on episodes to your friends and family and work associates. And we really appreciate the feedback. And so let's just dive right in. I covered four of these things. I, I, I think I told you in the last episode, I had something like 23 or 24 of these. So it's going to take several episodes and I hope we can Keep two or three of you in the listening audience interested in these ruminations and these thoughts. I'm, I'm sitting here with my um, cup of coffee from Chick-fil-A. So oddly enough, I had breakfast at Chick-fil-A this morning. Don't know why I'm telling you that except had a business meeting there. It's a great place to go have breakfast. And so, um, you know, free advertisement for Chick-fil-A and their coffee. So I may have to take a drink of that here every once in a while. But let's go ahead and get into it with... Uh, a few rules, uh, things for you to remember as I talk about these things. I expect some of these matters to be somewhat controversial, and that's not my intention. I'm just trying to work through lessons that I think are lessons to be considered. You know, in the months ahead, they're not just memories. These are things that I've looked at and I've thought about, and I want to Incorporate them in my thought life and, and, and meditate on them and see how I can apply them in me being a better person in various places that I am blessed to be a part of and the do- various doors the Lord might open up for me, for me to be involved in. So just thinking about these things and I want to get you thinking about them. And I think I've done some of this long enough to realize that, um, I would never expect everyone to agree with me. I would not expect everyone to disagree with me. That's not the point. The point is for us to be better thinkers. So let's move on. Uh, You know, the first issue, we talked about the circle of trust. We talked about the pyramid of performance. We talked about the good of profit uh, alongside people. And, And we talked about this breaking down this wall between the sacred and the secular in the marketplace. So here is number five. And this is a bit of a uh, different topic because it has to do with what I would call the church. Uh, As many of you listening to this podcast know, some of you do not. I uh, had the privilege of being a part of a wonderful church start back in 1999. We called it Stonegate Fellowship and had the uh, privilege of being able to preach and teach there for 18 years. And it uh, it was a wonderful season of our lives. We do not uh, participate in that uh, at this stage and uh, seeing what the lord will do as time goes by but um, to give you a little bit of background into this next point uh, after I became mayor and then after sort of the intense season of covid uh, I was asked through a series of relationships to do some national no international research on what is often termed the house church movement, and the best way to possibly convey that to you is, is not thinking about, you know, people that meet in small groups and houses, but think of it more as what are alternative ways that church is being done around the globe that perhaps might be something we should pay attention to, and especially in light of COVID. And, and if I were to give you a peek behind the curtain of my theology, I would tell you that I truly and deeply believe in the providential hand of God. I don't understand it. Uh, he is the blessed controller of all things, as the old English phrase would remind us. And he is mysterious and we cannot understand all of his ways. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts as the scriptures tell us, although we can know him personally through Jesus and the Holy Spirit and God's word. But being the blessed controller of all things, I do not think that world events, regardless of what those world events are, um, catch God by surprise. I think that, uh, they're just things we're never going to understand, except maybe on the other side of the curtain of eternity. But in the, going back to the research, I really believed that in God's providential hand, he was teaching the church something, and especially what I would call the uh, the version of church most of us are used to, which is a um, a gathering on Sundays usually, or a gathering on Wednesdays where many people get together in a building, listen to some people perhaps sing, listen to people preach and teach, or a liturgy, if you prefer that word, and then you depart, and then you go about your life. And when COVID uh, hit the globe, as many of you will remember, there was great consternation about whether people should be able to meet in worship services and congregated groups and various things. And so it was a challenge to the westernized church about how we were going to meet and how we were going to be a church, because most of us have, um, whether willingly or unwillingly, or just don't know it, and I'm not casting doubt or dispersion on anybody, we have tended to define church as this corporate gathering at a specific geographic location of a lot of people, and you do church activities. And, and so when I saw what was happening with COVID I and began my research, I was especially intrigued by the people I had conversations with in Europe. And when I say Europe, you can even expand that into Asia. And I was invited very quickly into a series of conversations about how the European church and the Asian church, especially in China, have under, undergone changes in the last hundred years that sort of predate or presuppose where we might be headed in the Western church. In other words, the corporate gathered church that we are pretty much used to with buildings and building campaigns is a thing of the past, especially in China, all over Europe, and they have begun various expressions of church that are far different than what we're used to here in the States, so to speak. And uh, in fact, those expressions include things like Gatherings that don't necessarily occur every week. They might occur two or three times a month. Most many gatherings that take place in people's homes, that take place in people's businesses, that take place in coffee shops and pubs, all over different places. And it's not a matter of trying to be cool by trying to see all the various places you can meet, but it's a matter of necessity. And the group consists of hundreds and thousands of small communities of people ranging anywhere from two to three people to groups of 10 to 15, maybe 20. And then they worship together, if you want to call it this gathering together, calling it worship. They would gather at various places and in various times and celebrate together. And, and, and so really what you have is expressions of what we would call church in all kinds of different forms and fashions all over Europe and, and all over China and other places in Asia. So as I began this research, trying to figure out what was happening and seeing what was happening in the American church and these amazing relationships that took place because of this, it led me to what I've written here is this, this point. Uh, and it's really 2021, 2022. It's not just uh, 2022, but I wrote it this way that the church as I knew it, and, and perhaps you could say the church as we have known it, will not be the church as we have known it in the years ahead in the point, I say I'm not completely sure what this will look like, while at the same time being more and more certain this new church will be visible in the marketplace more than the traditional sacred space that we're used to. All of that to say is, or all of that to say, I think that in the United States, um, especially, there is going to be a a redo, a reset, um, a reengineering, if you will, will. Of what, what, of what we would traditionally call church. Uh, I think we're going to see a reset in seminaries. Uh, I think that's going to change radically. And then I'll give you a little bit of an idea also as to how that might look. If you'll remember, there was a time a few decades ago, maybe not even a few decades ago, maybe just a decade and a half ago, where if you were going to get a college degree, you had to be on campus. And, and that has radically, radically changed. In fact, you can get a great degree from some great institutions and never set foot on the campus. You know, I was looking at uh, a particular course of study the other day from a university and it's a graduate degree and you never set foot on the campus and and that's happening in many, many places. And there was a day in time when uh, to be quote unquote qualified to be a minister You had to go to a seminary, and sometimes you could go to a seminary part-time, but you had a lot of classroom time, and that is radically changing. But also what is radically changing is this idea of who exactly is clergy. And if you are to study the Bible a little more clearly, and especially as you get into the New Testament and what the New Testament church looks like, it's very, very difficult to find the career um, of being a, um, a preacher. Uh, or even a priest, so to speak, because quite frankly, those who call on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation uh, read in the scriptures that we are all a priesthood that the Bible calls it that we are priests. We have direct direct access to the Father through the Son. So, before I, you know, I'm getting lost in the theology here, but I think we're going to begin to see a clergyless congregation begin to proliferate. Being a bit prophetic here. I believe we're going to be able to, we're going to be seeing less and less of the geographically located church. Doesn't mean there may not still be facilities and different things, but that's going to change. Um, so I think we're going to see some radical changes. I've been privileged to listen to some of these things. It's a very difficult conversation to have with people that I have known for decades and that I have been involved with since the seventies in the church world. Um, because it's, it's hard to break a paradigm. It's hard to change a deeply ingrained uh, perspective, especially when it carries with it very deeply uh, spiritual connections to what we consider to be holy and what we consider to be sacred. So just keep an eye out. Uh, I'm not calling it an official prophecy yet, but I think we're going to see changes, some radical changes. And my friends who are in Europe and in Asia have been able to be great historical reference points for me to say, you guys are headed down a road, you guys being us in America, you are headed down a road that we have traversed over the last um, uh, century. And so they're, they're able to give us some great lessons. It's just a matter of whether or not we will have the humility to listen to those lessons and apply those lessons to, um, because it's going to change some things. It's going to change structure. It's going to change governance. It's going to sacrifice some sacred cows of how we think we do things. So there you go. That's a lesson from 20. I would say that's a lesson from late 2020 all the way through 2022 and something that is still being fleshed out for me in 2023 and where that's going to head. So now moving on to possibly even more um, controversial topics, This next lesson is another one that sort of um, cemented itself for me in 2022, but also I began to see in uh, probably 2018, 19, especially 20 and 21. um, And it has significant political overtones. So we'll take a little bit of time here to look through it. And hopefully if you're in corporate leadership, especially if you are in the publicly traded space, um, I hope you'll listen to this conversation. Uh, I will tell you that if you are a Democrat, listening to what I'm about to talk about, you will have a different perspective than a uh, Republican, probably. Um, but I'm going to try to avoid any indication of either the left or the right politically, because this topic matters to me because of readings and that I've had over the last 25 years that spoke of this day in which we are in. So let me let me go ahead and take the time to kind of read through the lesson, and then we'll discuss it a little bit. And it begins this way. Diversity, equity, and inclusion, or diversity, inclusion, and equity, however your company looks at that, as well as ESG, so diversity, equity, and inclusion, and environmental, social, and governance issues are the proof of the right thing— being ignored by the best business minds. So the worst business minds, i.e. government, will hijack the right thing and turn it into the wrong thing. I continue. The turning of the tide on this matter back to the better leadership of business will be a long, hard slog as radical elements on both sides have taken the issues, diversity, equity, inclusion, environmental, social, and governance, have taken the issues and run with them with their radical viewpoints on both sides of the proverbial aisle. And then the way I finished this comment was just like my COVID experiences, this is a leadership fulcrum issue. I'll come back and describe the COVID issue. The conversation is dominated today by extreme actions and reactions, extreme uh, accusations and reaccusations, a lot of verbosity. But it's up to the best leaders to see beyond the smoke and the haze of all the extremes and to chart a path that best benefits humanity. And I would believe, and I believe that capitalism is the best way to benefit humanity in this. Now, let me go backwards through the quote and tell you my COVID experience. So, as many of you know, I swore into office as the mayor of Midland in January of 2020, which was then quickly followed by the worldwide chaos of COVID. One of the first meetings I had when we were trying to unpack what was happening with COVID was in the midst of sort of the... um the just unfolding of craziness in February and March of 2020. And there were different cities around Texas and around the country who were doing shelter in place orders. And I was downloading all of those shelter in place orders. I was reading them and I was intrigued by the fact that every shelter in place order or closing down a city said you couldn't leave your home because of COVID. But then there were probably, four, five, six pages of exceptions. So you, you could leave your home if you needed to go to the grocery store. You could leave your home if you needed to go to Walgreens to get your prescription or wherever you got your prescription. If you had to go to work, you could leave your home. And these things were confusing to me. And I was beginning to realize we were already dividing into camps. And that was reinforced when I had my first meeting with a uh, a group of doctors from our local medical community who came to see me. And the gist of the meeting was, if I don't shut the city down and do a shelter-in-place order, and and this is not uh, anecdotal um, or exaggerative, I'm telling you exactly what was told me, then I would have somewhere in the neighborhood of 2,000 people dead on my hands in the city of Midland, and I should probably go ahead and go invest in refrigerated trailers, trucks, so to speak, to keep the dead bodies. So that that was the option I was left with, which was you got to shut this city down or you're going to be basically a killer. And then I began having meetings with the other side who were telling me, if you shut the city down, if you execute a shelter in place order, then you're nothing more than a socialist, you know, or a communist or a dictator or something like that. So because of the grace of God, I think I had enough wisdom and some trusted advisors around me. He said, okay, what we now have is an exposure of the extremes, and I'm going to talk more about extremes on another point. So there's got to be a more thoughtful way to consider this. And that's when I began, and I actually have a, a podcast episode about this, I began thinking of my role as being on the fulcrum of the teeter-totter that had the extremes on both sides. And and this thing was out of control, and, and I needed to find a way not to be... Um, lost in the middle, but to be a mediator and a moderator between legitimate concerns that may be gone to the extremes. Now, why do I tell you that story? Because I've begun to see more and more in my practice that it is the extremes that are sort of killing us. But in this issue of diversity, equity, inclusion, and ESG, let me first define terms so you can get a, a greater grasp of the holistic way in which I'm thinking about this. I do not think, regardless of your political um, leanings, I do not think there is anybody in this listening audience who in a honest moment has any problem with the value of diversity in people, the value of the diversity of racial makeup of our communities the value of diversity in our boards of directors, the value of diversity in the marketplace. Now, I understand because I know where some of you are already going about what's happening with diversity and what kind of diversity issues are being forced upon us, but stay above the fray right now in this conversation. But all of us, have we have great respect for diversity. We, all of us have great respect for equity in the marketplace. We want things to be fair. We want, we want things to be right. We want them to be done. And we can get in a fairly significant debate about the differences between equity and equality. But in general, if you don't go to your extreme corner just yet, we want things to be equitable in the marketplace. We want equity in the marketplace. We want equity in business. And we want people to have the ability to get involved in the marketplace in those ways. And when we think about issues of inclusion, we want people to be wanted. We want people to be needed, needed. We we want people to feel like they're a part of the system. Now, already, Again, I can already hear some of you saying, but look at where this has gone in the extremes. That's fine. Hold on to that thought, though, because then when we get to the issues that are so prevalent in the area in which I live in with the oil and gas industry in many regards— I don't know of anybody in the listening audience who doesn't love the environment. I have never met anybody who says what I'd really like to do is poison the water and make sure that people die from drinking bad water. What I really want to do is poison the breathing air around me because I hope all of us suffocate with lung diseases from, from industry or whatever it is, whatever it issue is. But it is the extremes who have taken on the defining issues. And this is where we are today, but I've not met a person who doesn't want to do the right thing for the environment. And and I can hear another side saying, yeah, but their, their, their actions prove otherwise. And I would say that that's another ex, uh, issue of the extremes. Are there things that happen bad in all industries? Yes. Do good players in the industry try to make those things right? Yes, but I digress. So the issue of social, social issues. You know, there was a day in time many, 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 many decades ago when corporate when companies really almost took on whole cities to make sure they were better. Think Hershey, Pennsylvania and different things like that. We want our social environment to be good. We want to um, make sure we have good social balance and make sure that we have good social institutions. And finally, the G, we want our companies and our lives to be governed well. We want governance to have its proper place and to do the right things. Now, why am I making this point? There is nothing wrong with valuing diversity, valuing equity, valuing inclusion. There's nothing wrong with valuing the environment and social issues and social life and governance. But now you say, well, you said something about a couple and a half decades ago, you were reading some stuff. And I've referenced this book hundreds of times, but it's an old classic by Robert Greenleaf, who was a middle management guy at AT AT&T, who wrote this book in the late 70s and early 80s called Servant Leadership. And in the book, he talks about the calling of servant leadership in business, in corporations, and especially large corporations. And he makes this statement, and I've paraphrased it over the years, but um, the the heart of his statement is he says, on all things related to the social environment in which we live and the governance in which we operate under, if we ignore the important issues of humanity in our corporate boardrooms and in our management and leadership, government will take over those issues and dictate what businesses have to do with those issues. And it will always be to the detriment of the business, even though, and actually to the detriment of society, even though government would like to think it's for the good. Today, because we have not paid attention more specifically to the human and humanity element of what we do Government has stepped in, being controlled by different entities, so to speak, and has begun to dictate what diversity, equity, and inclusion looks like and what ESG looks like to the detriment, if people step back and look, to the detriment of almost all classes because government, in the words of Ronald Reagan, whenever government says they are here to help you, you better run fast. And that is where we are today. So when I go back to this point of what I've learned and what I'm learning and what I'm watching is, remember I said that the uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion and ESG elements are proof of the right thing being ignored by the best business minds. So the worst business minds, governance, that's usually local, state, and national, will hijack the right thing and turn it into the wrong thing. In order for us to turn this tide, it's going to take good business people leading on these issues and getting government out of these issues. And because government is so entrenched in these issues, that is going to be a difficult thing. So what's the point of all this? I want you to think about it. I want you to think about how good issues have been hijacked by bad governance. And especially if you're in a position to make change and to lead change in your companies, to make sure you're leading the way in a way that benefits humanity on all of these matters and you are leading the conversation rather than having to respond to the dictates. And you're at least being very aware that the best place for these things to be remedied is through the free market, which will do the best thing for humanity. And I, and there's probably some of you listening who say, well, the free market's to blame for these things. No, I would just say they ignored these things and then government took them over. And that's how government operates. Good things get taken hostage By governance, and governance is rarely good at taking care of people, quite frankly. So keep that in mind. Um, I'm sure that many of you have already turned this podcast off now because of this conversation, but let me take a good quick drink of my Chick-fil-A coffee, and let's move on. How's that listening to me swallow here on on the podcast? Let's move on to the next thing and um i'll read it to you and then i'll try to give you some insight on it but this basically comes out this way the politics and the reality of social media and sound bites is killing us and it will kill us if we don't find ourselves into a renaissance of thinking li- leaders who think long and hard before typing texting and posting great thinkers and thought leaders will emerge and i put in parentheses i hope but cutting through the noise is going to be hard. Um, let me read that again. The politics and the reality of social media and soundbites is killing us. The 24-hour news cycle, the 24-hour posting, the 24-hour videos, all of it is killing us. And it will, it will kill us if we don't find ourselves into a renaissance, an awakening, um, a rebirth, so to speak, of thinking leaders who will think long and hard, before typing, texting, and posting. Great thinkers and thought leaders will emerge, I hope, but cutting through the noise is going to be hard. I think there are great benefits to social media um, if you use it for the right purposes. I remember a friend of mine telling me that really social media should just be information dissemination. It should not be for angry conversations and conversations that require great thought. And unfortunately, we live in a day and time where you want to be the first one to say something rather than realizing the value of perhaps being the last one to clarify something. And we're we're just not a culture that is used to people taking the time to think deeply, to think hard, to write things out, to edit things. And, you know, when I look back and read my history, and I'm currently going through a book about Samuel Adams, I've read a ton of history about founders, Um I read as much history as I can about leaders of old uh, who are dead and gone. I rarely read a biography of somebody who's still alive because I think the story is still being written. And what I find out is is in the most formative days of society, great thinkers took time to think. They took time to write. and And you could even say in the writing and in the time it took for correspondence to be transferred between parties— there were time there was time for reactions and responses to be thought through to be considered things did not happen as fast as they do today but one could argue that the speed at which things happen today because of social media is not to the betterment of all of us involved in society today everything has become how fast and right now that doesn't mean There are not emergencies where we need immediate communication and where we need, you know, emergency alerts and different things like that. But nearly every decision and conversation, flip that, conversation and then decision probably needs to be more silent than it is vocal before we start making decisions. Unfortunately, all you have to do is be on Twitter. I, I got no beef there. I'm not trying to make a case for bitter, uh, for Twitter. I'm not trying to make a case for or against Facebook or anything like that. I'm just saying because people can type things and can say things as they want to say them and they don't have to think about it. Well, they don't think about who they're hurting, who they're attacking. They don't think about their words then we end up in these extreme conversations going back to the previous point of the teeter-totter on all sides, and it's just back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, and it all happens in matters of matter of minutes rather than days. And I can tell you, uh, especially in the careers that I've had, both as um, a leader in the church and also as a mayor, that the amount of email and social media vitriol that was directed toward me it's, it's an easy anecdotal shot to tell you that at least 95% of it, if not more than 95% of it, was absent an understanding of the details in which they were talking about because people did not want to take the time to have a conversation. And many times I would respond to people and say, why don't you meet with me and we'll have a conversation about that? And they would not because they would rather have their little audience on their social media than have their issues correct. So, a lesson from 2020, 2021, 2022, and something I think all of us should consider is how we use our social media, if we should be using our social media, and realizing that it's time for a renaissance of great thinking. And great thinking and great thought leaders take great amounts of time to get the thoughts right and and to get the issues correct. So, You know, maybe you need to take a break from your social media. Maybe you need to take a sabbatical from your social media. I would just encourage you to be a more deliberate thinker and um, encourage those around you to be engaged in more deliberate thinking. We are losing the gift and the art and the science and the wisdom of deep thought. There's a book written several years ago called Deep Work, and we're kind of losing that as well. And and when we get into this place where we abdicate deep thinking, deep thought, deep work, then all pun intended, we're just going to end up being shallower people in a shallower society. So that leads me to the third issue of the day, and I'll probably make this the last one that piggybacks on the previous two. You can kind of see I'm in a, in a train of thought here when I was writing these things out. And again, they're in no particular order. But here we go. Here's number three. I'll read it and then see if there's really anything to elaborate on. The extremes, and we've already been talking about that, are islands of safety where an absence of critical thinking takes place. It takes a brave new group to get off the islands and see what is in the ocean of opportunity and challenge. Many times we we retreat to the extremes because there's a crowd in the noise of the extremes. There's there's more noise in in the in the focused crowd of extremes than there is in the quiet place of contemplation about what's being said. So they're they're islands of safety to the left or to the right or to the north or to the south or whatever direction your extreme is. And and really, it, it goes back to this this comment I heard years ago when I was a wise mentor told me um, he said, "Listen, you're not prepared." to argue your case until you can successfully argue your opponent's case. What he was telling me was something that is an axiom and a truth in the seven habits of highly effective people, which is we must seek first to understand before demanding to be understood. And that is very hard to see the other side. Doesn't mean you have to agree with it, but to see it in all of its iterations before you can make a case against it. I didn't even finish the statement. I'll go on to say this. I have a friend <clears throat> who has quite the social media presence who says the following. He says, stay in the deep end. And I'm not sure all that he means by it, but I think it's true. The shallow end has a lot of noise and a lot of people that play in the shallow end, but the real adventure is where maturity and ability is abounds, and that's in the deep end. Quite frankly, children, all pun intended, so to speak, are all reference intended. Children, children of thought and children who don't have an ability yet, flourish and play and make a lot of noise in the shallow end. But grown-ups and those who have practiced their ability to, quote unquote, swim, enjoy the deep end. And most of life is played in the shallows where so many actually believe they are really deep when all they do is just stick their head underwater. You know, it's like when you go snorkeling in great places and people snorkel in five feet of water and think it's amazing. And then you have to tell them, wait a minute, let's get out there where it's a little deeper and it's a little quieter and it's a little riskier. And let's see what's really out there to see because you can't do life in the shallow end, but that's where the extremes are. We need a lot more responding instead of reacting. That means this goes back to the second point. We need thinkers and meditators, critical long-term thinkers, who take very few things at first glance or first blush. And and I wrote, the th- last thing I wrote in this was this will border on cynicism and negativism. Maybe people think I'm being cynical and negative, but it's really a matter of staying in the deep end and seeking to understand. And so, you know, I, I, I can remember decades ago, even when I was a theology student uh, in seminary and you could learn a theological truth. You could read it in a book but if you've never had to flesh out that theological truth uh, with people through life, then you're just a shallow end theologian. And, and I'll give you an example of that. You know, I, I've heard people make statements about what grief is, and I've heard st- people make statements about God's will and how God's working things. And the, the issue might be true, but you haven't fleshed your theology out until you've sat across from a family who I had to sit across from in the early days of ministry— who was on a family vacation and the husband was killed in a car accident. And now you have a wife and two kids who are widow and orphans, so to speak, not completely orphans. You know what I mean? Or you have to sit across the table from a, a, a mom who has lost her child in a car accident, or you have to, you have to take your theology through the deep stuff of life. And that transcends just theology. It, it speaks of our politics. It speaks of our management that, We get into sound bites and we get into business books, but sometimes we don't think long and hard about what we're doing. And it takes brave people to get away from the extremes and to operate in a small group of thought to come out with bigger thoughts, bigger ideas, and a better way forward for people. Quite frankly, to quote my friend, to stay in the deep end. So I would encourage you to consider how you're thinking in the deep end. How are you reading in the deep end? How are you talking in the deep end of life and the deep issues of life? Because we're desperately in need of deep thinkers. And I believe there's a young generation who's coming coming of age who might actually grasp onto these things. So for today, I told you a little bit about what I think's ahead for the church that I've learned from some lessons of the past couple of years. I've probably made a few of you mad about my idea that I think business should get back to capturing, in my opinion, a conservative view of diversity, equity, and inclusion and environmental, environmental and social and governance issues because they've been hijacked by the radical elements of government on all sides. I've told you what I think is happening with social media and my lesson as I move ahead into the future of making sure we are thinking and not just reacting and how dangerous the extremes are and how important it is for us to stay in the deep end. All of these lessons I just told you today kind of all center around the idea of being a deeper thinking people, of being a more responsible people with our thoughts and our words and the things we write. And so I hope some of these lessons have been a benefit to you. Stay tuned for episode three of what's turning into this eternal podcast. And, um, I'll give you a preview. I'm going to be talking about uh, competition. I'm going to be talking about culture. I'm going to be talking about forgiveness and, uh, you know, a couple other things associated with that. So I hope you'll tune in to the next episode of No Neutral Moments. For that, thank you again uh, for tuning in. Uh, God bless you. And remember, as you go through this day, there's no such thing as a neutral moment. (laughs)